Welcome to Why Not Change the World, the RPI podcast, where scholars from different disciplines tackle big ideas. I'm your host, Jeannie Hedden Gallagher, and in this episode, we're going to hear from two students who are already changing the world and getting attention for it, and they haven't even earned their bachelor's degrees yet. First, we'll hear from a rising social media star and science communicator who spoke with my colleague, Mary Martielli. Here's Mary. I recently spoke with Maggie Burris, a Rensselaer Biology student and creator of the TikTok channel Mags for Science. Maggie launched the channel earlier this year, and she's already amassed more than 500,000 followers and worked with Discovery and CBS. And I was interested to learn, as you'll hear, about her experiences and the devoted audience for science that she's found on a really rapidly growing social media platform. Before you started Max for Science, what was your experience with communicating science to a general audience and social media? When I was in high school, I was a part of an organization who promoted international baccalaureate for my school. And so I did a lot of hours and hours and hours of tutoring kids to try and help them get the IB diploma. I spent a lot of my time just reading, even classes that I didn't take um, in IB, just reading the stuff that IB would give to us and just in my ear and then out my mouth a different summary so that people could actually, in a way that I would talk regularly. And regularly, I don't use a lot of the phrasing and um, structure that they used at IB. So I did a lot of that. So I've done a lot of science communication on my own time. So what prompted you to create the first video? I don't even remember really why I decided, but I just decided one day that I was going to just make a video, um, like a silly one minute video about how I think that it's statistically impossible that aliens don't exist. And I would present my case with the statistic evidence of the law of large numbers and tell people how what the large numbers we're talking about here is because I think that a lot of people don't really understand how the magnitude of probability because of just how many uh what the population size is and so then I just made that video and then people liked it and then I just made another one and then that one got 600,000 views and then I was like well there's a market How do you get ideas for the videos you produce? I'm a huge nerd. I'd say uh, my hobbies are science and my education and academics are science. And so all all day, every day, I'm ingesting scientific literature. And so because of that, and because I'm so passionate about it, I always get when I hear something really awesome and cool that I think I've never heard before, um, I just... I get the urge to just be like, oh my gosh, everyone should know how cool this is. This is amazing. Do people know about this? And normally before I had a TikTok, I would just call people like my friends and just rant to them about what I learned that was mind blowing to me. So that's how I get my ideas is whatever I think is cool. Can you tell us about some of the topics you've covered? Um, so I've done multiple videos about Luca, the last universal common ancestor, because I think it's outside of the scientific realm, really, really not known. And I personally think it's one of my favorite parts of biology. Um, And also it it goes against, I like to talk about things that go against what you would think otherwise. So I was under the impression before I read about Luca that there was probably multiple ancestors originally. But now that I have read about Luca and know that there is one organism with one Luca, I was just like, whoa, that's so cool. I had no idea that that was the case. 
that's, I mean, we're all completely related. That's so awesome. Um, so I've done a few about Luca. I've done a few, I've done a lot of astrophysics. So I think that that's really interesting. Um, I did one on CRISPR, one on stem cells, um, black holes, stars, element production, um, supernovas, time dilation, stuff like that. Did the channel get traction from the beginning? Did it take a while to catch on? Yeah, my first video had 600 views and then I posted my second video and that got 600,000 views. And then I, in about a month later, Hank Green duetted, which is basically like, duet is like, he took my video and put it on his account, but next to my video was a video of him. That's what duetting is. And he just said, this person deserves, it was me celebrating 40,000 followers, which was about a month after I had started TikTok. And he duetted my video and said, 40,000, this girl deserves 40 million. And then of course, all of Hank Green's followers then followed me, so. So what's your goal? What are you trying to accomplish in offering content and maintaining mags for science? There's a difference in my plan and my goals. So my goals um, come from, I want to have fun. I'm not gonna compromise. I'm not gonna make content on, you know, things I don't find interesting. I'm gonna stay authentic that way so that I don't ever burn out. Um, and my other goal is to educate teens and make them feel like, you know, despite what, despite any level of education that they had, that they can still feel like they're a part of the scientific community. They can still feel like they're at the top of modern research and they know what's going on rather than just feeling excluded from everything, which is something that I've seen a lot of people feel from feedback. And then my plan, which is not necessarily my goal, but my plan is I think I'm going to just keep doing this and see what happens. What's mm -hmm. the true utility of these kinds of explanations for ordinary people? I would say that I personally view the utility as a feeling that I wish I would have had when I was in middle and high school in which I felt like I could potentially be a part of this society of, or group of people who I thought were only geniuses. So I think that there's a lot of encouragement to go into science, but a lot of kids don't get that encouragement. And if you're never given that encouragement and you're never, I mean, I was, get, both of my parents are scientists and I still thought I was too dumb for science my whole life. And I thought, you know, like, even if I got great grades, I'm not a robot human who can be one of those Einstein scientists. And I think that by, you know, breaking down these incredibly difficult concepts like um, like string theory, one of the most complicated theories in all of physics, by breaking that down to at the as basic as I could possibly get, something that if someone asked you, like, do you know string theory? You won't feel like, oh, I'm, I couldn't possibly ever understand that. I'm not smart enough. I'm too dumb. And the utility for me comes, well, I, I get confirmation that I'm giving that utility by all of the messages I get every day from people saying, you know, I never, ever thought I would ever be able to understand things like this. I had heard string theory a million times. I've watched a million YouTube videos, 
but it just went over my head every single time. And now I finally feel like I'm not like this excluded dummy that I could potentially, and these people are in high school, most of my uh, demographic or kids in high school, they'll say, you know, like, I feel like I could take science classes. I feel like um, maybe I do like science. Maybe I can try and apply myself in science. So I think that just at a foundational level, it's just a encouraging um, message to kids who need it, who didn't feel like they could ever understand the science before. So you're looking to help young people kind of keep their enthusiasm for science and keep the door open as they move through their education? Yeah, I think that because um, so many of these people, they were probably in elementary school. I've actually looked at the data of this. So not probably, definitely. In elementary school, these people, so many more kids say they want to be scientists than they do in high school. So many kids are like, it's one of the top job choices of these elementary school kids is science is so cool. I want to know all these questions. Why is the sky blue? Why is the plants green? Why do things explode? Like so many questions are in their head. And then in high school, these kids just feel like they either feel you have to be a genius to be a scientist or science is just a bunch of pH labs where you just like sit all day. Like that's all sciences. You could never find any more wonder once you get to high level science and they feel like scientists um, don't have the curiosity that they do because you don't really, I, I think that curiosity at its foundation, even if it's silly curiosity is kind of discouraged once you get to higher level science, like asking questions that everyone should know, like why is the sky blue? That seems like a it's kid a damn good question and most yeah. people can't answer it. <laughs> yeah, it, a kid would think, um, because a kid doesn't have that feeling of like, um, that they're less educated than everyone. A kid would think, you know, that's a great question. Why is the sky blue? I need to ask that. And an adult would think, I can't ask that. That's so stupid. I just got to Google it. Like people are going to laugh at me for even asking that question. But then when they're taught, you know, like, oh my gosh, everything is so cool. Like I'm a scientist. I have these crazy questions. I ask my professors all the time, like, what if we shot all of our trash at the sun? Like, and then it just wasn't a problem anymore. And then people would be like, why are you asking that question? That's so silly. That's so irrelevant. But it's because I'm a scientist and I want to know. I have so many questions. Tell us about some of the things you've learned since you started this. Well, I've learned, um, learned definitely how to video edit. I didn't know how to do that before. I made one video and someone said, what the heck are you doing here? I also got a tripod. So I learned that people don't like shaky cameras. Um, I've learned to speak up in my videos and I've learned that a lot of people are going to hate what I say, no matter what I say. Legitimately, no matter what science I bring to the table, there's someone who thinks it's the most bogus nonsense. So, so you get trolled, huh? Oh, I get, I would say I get 50 direct hate messages a day from my DMs, just straight um, I think you should go to jail. I think you're the dumbest person to ever live, stuff like that. How do you handle that kind of negative feedback? At first, it the first couple or probably the first hundred or so that I got, I was just like, is what I'm doing really wrong? Should I not be doing this? Like, am I, should I go to jail? Like, am I misleading children? Um, should science only be taught if it's taught in depth? Because that's what the people were saying or like, 
you know, am I being rude to religious people? Like, what do I do? And then eventually I was just like, they're so similar. So now I just sort of, I'm like, okay. Is there anything you'd like to add? I guess I have um, a message to people listening, if that's okay. So I think that one of the things I try to emphasize is that uh, no matter what stage in your life, like educationally or just in life, that you should feel welcome by the scientific community because, you know, it, it's everything that scientists do, they, they don't do to keep secret. Um, they don't do to ostracize the public. And it's a really wonderful community and lots of what scientists do, they do for the general public. So it would be you're more than welcome to ask questions and no one's going to think you're silly for not knowing their research and no one's going to think. I mean, honestly, most researchers are going to beg to talk more and more and more and, and answer a million of your questions because they love talking about their research. Um, and you don't have stupid questions, even if you're 80 years old and, and everyone puts this pressure on you that you should know everything that it's totally fine to still ask why the sky's blue and have someone answer that. Next up is third-year architecture student Aida Ayuk, whose work has been gaining significant recognition. I spoke with Ayuk about architecture, entrepreneurship, and her design for a biogas-powered house that looks like an old record player. So, Aida, let's start with a pretty basic question. Why architecture? It's definitely not a typical career. I mean, I always think, you know, who wouldn't want to do architecture? Who wouldn't want to design the world around you? But I've always been interested in what I would say are the skills of architecture, you know, art, construction. As a kid, actually, I wanted to be a construction worker at some point, which as an African-American female, you can imagine, is a little odd to adults. But and I think a lot of architecture students would say, you know, Legos, art are definitely the driving factors. But a lot of the things that drove me is my community is a really small community, about two square miles. Um, right outside the D.C. area. We're considered kind of a hippie town. In our region, we have the highest, or in our city, actually, we have the highest amount of returned Peace Corps volunteers in any city mm -hmm. in America. So you asked about my sort of upbringing, my parents. My mother is one of these returned Peace Corps volunteers, and she's been, you know, a leading force in what I'm interested in. One of her passions is helping people. I would consider that one of my passions as well, although you know, paper cuts scare me. So I use architecture as, or I see architecture as that kind of tool to do the same kind of work, to see all the problems that are existing, you know, maybe not in my direct community, but definitely in the DC area of people being displaced in these communities that at one point an architect had to design for them. And I think it's our role to really, whether we go in and make those changes or um, initially, we have to make all these considerations of what it means to have a productive community for everybody. I want to make a societal difference with the work that I do. And so to have a school that believes that every member of its community from any trade has a larger potential than what even that student might immediately think is really inspiring. What drew me to RPI was actually the motto. Um, why not change the world, although some people might find it pretty cheesy in a sense. I really think it's a bold statement to claim as a school, and it 
intrigued me. The dean of architecture individually calls every student. I think it's a pretty important thing that he does because you get a sense of what he's about. And he is a big draw to the school. When I got here, I got a chance to sit down with him. And again, going back to this message, why not change the world? It's really one of those things where it's either going to be like a fun punchline or you're going to commit to it. And I think all the faculty here really commits to it. He walked me through, you know, what he's interested in, what he's trying to get out of his students. And it made me feel like even if I were to, you know, walk out of the room, never look back at RPI, he still believed that me with my architecture mindset could do anything that I wanted to do. I also got a chance to talk to a faculty member who gave us a tour around um, Anthony Titus. And not once in our conversation did he talk about architecture as buildings. You know, he is an artist, um, first and foremost, and he sees a bigger picture of architecture. And I think when you've never had to define architecture as one thing, you're just open to all the possibilities of what it could be. I mean, it's a device. We have this power to alter, you know, and sort of a power to control the way people live, how you interact in society, your sort of purpose in every area, place you go to. And I think with that sort of responsibility, there's so much more that you can do. So so how does your work with biogas fit into the picture? So in my first year at RPI, um, my second semester, I worked with a professor, Rhett Russo. And I think he stood for a lot of the ideas and passions that I wanted to expand upon. I'm really interested in seeing how can technological innovations find their way into architecture and start to change it, start to better it, start to actually create the work that people see as, you know, far off, just in the future, we're not quite there yet. And in his studio, we did a sort of a technological breakdown. So I worked with an old 70s record player and you you'd find all the pieces of it and then you start to say, okay, like what can this be? You know, you're taking this now unfamiliar object, which I think is all of architecture, and you have to make it something. And so we started to investigate how does energy flow through this object? And then how can that go into the real world real world with a real energy source? And I started to research into biogas. And biogas mm-hmm. energy is pretty phenomenal. There's a lot of energy sources that are currently being used in Africa. And, and I think that just comes from, you know, in a lot of these smaller villages with limited resources, people, they have to be creative. And I think that's essential to any sort of change. And so they have many different types of energy sources that I think could do all sorts of damage in a U.S. market. But biogas energy is what stood out to me to work with. And you started to create this project of biogas fueling a record player that then is transformed into a residential home. And this home and this family kind of grew around it and created a dynamic of, okay, well, now you have a mutually beneficial relationship between the only way that the home can take care of this family is if the family as caretakers put in this same level of effort to care for now this machine that they live in. And it's that sort of relationship that I think could be found in all forms of architecture. Um, And, you know, of course, it created this pretty interesting design. So he ended up doing his own publication with it for a school organization. And me and a couple other students got published in that. And then Dezeen recently picked up on student projects, 10 futuristic projects of RPI. And 
I had an incredible opportunity to also be a part of that, um, which was just, you know, amazing. But I think one thing about it is a lot of these projects, just like as they were named in Dezine, you know, they're seen as futuristic. And I think to some extent they don't need to be. I mean, this is the now. Anything imaginable, I would think, could be put into place with the right execution. And that's definitely what led me to entrepreneurship because all of a sudden these doors and these limitations that you find in architecture, they don't exist in this world of entrepreneurship. You go over to the Lally School and you'll meet some of the most open-minded people ever, you know, any sort of idea, any sort of aspiration, and they want to help you, okay? Let's break it down to the steps and change the world. I mean, it's just that simple. Well, what's the change you'd like to see? There's a lot of change that I would like to see. I think if I could, you know, wave my magic wand and say, this is what's going to change the world, it would be the climate crisis. I think that's the problem on every architect's mind. We, in the building sector, we contribute more to carbon emissions than any other field. So it's on us to sort of stop that. But at the same time, I've always been really concerned actually with homelessness. Um, That's what I wrote my essay on to come to RPI was homelessness, because that's something that definitely hits close to home, just in the sense of my community in the D.C. area. You know, every day some new neighborhood is being completely gentrified and people are being displaced. And all it takes is one bad day. And all of a sudden it seems like society has kind of turned on these people. And you look at these communities. And again, that's our role as architects. We have to go in and make sure that this doesn't happen. Okay, so are, so are you an entrepreneur or an architect? That's a good question. I I would say I would see myself as both. Um, I think at first my idea was entrepreneurship is my tool. This is a way that I can do the kind of architecture that I want to do because although I have this mindset, entrepreneurship is where I saw things really getting done, you know, in the moment. And I think our generation, you know, right now, just down the street from me, you have people in the streets, you know, chanting, we're the generation of change. And it, ha- but we, you know, we, we have to have it be immediate, you know, long change. It's just not as desirable. And entrepreneurship is the now change. And so that definitely attracts me to it. But I think the only way that I can accomplish what I want to do is to be an architect. I think you have to get to that level, you know, whether or not I end up working in the traditional firm or not, it takes being an architect to actually achieve the built environment that I want to create. If I want to have that sort of community engagement and create societal change at a local level, that's the architect. You know, the entrepreneur definitely can innovate and invent to aid that, but it takes the architect to really execute it on the larger level. This episode of Why Not Change the World was recorded remotely due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Please take a moment to rate the podcast on whatever app you're on. And if you'd like to learn more about what's happening at Rensselaer, visit rpi.edu. Thanks for listening.